0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. (laughs) Please be seated. One of the fun parts about being ordained and walking around in the collar is that you never—you just get to talk to all sorts of people and they'll come up with their questions or the points that they want to debate you on or whatever. And I really enjoy that um, about it. Um, and recently I, I got to have lunch over at Lors with someone who is not Anglican. He is a Christian, but he's not Anglican. Um, I call Lors the parish bar because it gives me an excuse to go there more often. Um, but anyways, um, it was a really fun conversation that I got to have with this guy. And we, we debated theology for some time and, and he asked really good questions. Um, But one of the things that he was kind of perturbed about uh, about sacramental traditions like Anglicanism is that we often see the impartation of grace tied to both matter, that is, uh, something, and ritual. And this he was basically contending is a sign that we don't truly and properly believe in grace, that we're somehow works-based because of that. Now, this is, of course, not true. Sacramental Theology 101 is that God is the primary actor in the sacraments. So we had a baptism here a few weeks ago of a baby. And when Father Tom poured the water on the baby, he said the words, "You know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So there's a sense in which Father Tom was the minister of that baptism. But we also know that the Holy Ghost was working in the heart of that child through what Father Tom did and what he said. And we know that because we're creatures and God is our creator. So it's not a problem for us to say that God uses secondary causes. He uses water. He uses bread and wine. He uses priests. He uses all these other material and creaturely things in order to bring about our salvation. And so if we truly understand what the church teaches about sacraments, we don't see sacraments as a reason for us to boast in our work. Quite the opposite. You know, our boys, Jude and Rowan, were dragged to the baptismal font, kicking and screaming. Um, they certainly didn't choose to do that. It's not, nothing they can brag about. But rather, it's a sign that we're completely dependent on God. And I think it's good for us to be reminded every so often about that dependence. And that's what St. Paul is doing to us in our reading from the epistle of Second Corinthians this morning. Now, this section uh, in 2 Corinthians, in which our reading is ensconced, is an apologetic being offered by St. Paul for his ministry. Um, You may know, if you're familiar with St. Paul, that he got a lot of resistance, um, particularly from Jewish Christians, for the gospel that he was preaching. A gospel that said Gentiles could be allowed in the church, and that Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. So St. Paul, instead of submitting a resume or a CV or a mission statement or a vision statement, he doesn't do any of those things, but rather he kind of gives his own story. And he would know this because he had been a persecutor of Christians and had been converted into one of the most profound preachers of the gospel. Elsewhere, he says, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So for St Paul to defend his ministry, he doesn't hold up his qualifications, his degrees or even his own skills. He understood the important point that we as humans are sufficient or not sufficient of ourselves. And that makes sense, right? To be a creature is to be inherently limited. We can only be in one place at one time. We can only ever know a finite amount of data. And while we like to think that we control everything about our lives, we often find out that we are actually not in control. And while this might cut against our pride, it's actually good that we have these limits because those limits are what make us us, right? You are who you are, Because you were born in the particular place that you were, to the particular parents that you were, who gave you a particular education so that you could do particular jobs that were part of your particular vocation so that you could contribute to a particular family. This is what it means to be a creature. Our particularities, our finitude make us who we are, but it also comes with that recognition that we are, in fact, limited. Now, our four-year-old, I think, is uh, going to be finding out about some of these limitations soon because this week he told us that when he retires from playing professional baseball, he's going to start playing professional hockey. (laughs) Now, I I think his limits might prevent him from doing both of those things or even really one of those things. But of course, if we take the Bible seriously, we we understand our our creaturehood, and in addition to our creaturehood, we have a compounded problem, which is that we inherit deficiencies from Adam and Eve's fall, right? We call this the doctrine of original sin. Now, in the preceding passage in 2 Corinthians, right before what we read this morning, St. Paul actually describes some of the limitations that he has encountered in himself, um, some misadventures due to his finitude, we might call them. Um, he tells us the story of, of when he went to a city called Troas, um, and, and he thought he had an opportunity to go there, and he wanted to meet up with a brother minister named Titus. Um, but once he arrived, he says he had no peace of mind, and he, he couldn't find Titus there. He, had, he, wasn't, he wasn't home. And so he ends up leaving and going to Macedonia. Now, we might say, what a failure. You know, St. Paul, miscommunication, he didn't understand, and um, so he kind of foolishly went to Troas, um, and so it was a waste of his time. But listen to what St. Paul says about this excursion. Thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ." So perhaps in his trip to Troas, St. Paul did not accomplish X, Y, or Z that he had hoped to, but he's still confident that God used him to accomplish his divine purposes in the city. And this, I think, highlights that central theme for today, our dependence on God. If If we as creatures are limited by our finitude and our particularities, well, then we know God is not limited by those things. He's not limited like we are. God is pure being. He doesn't have any potential. He's not limited by space. He's omniscient, and he's in control of everything. We know this has to be true because of the very first verse in the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And perhaps since we live at the end of a long heritage of of Christian thought that has sort of saturated our our intellectual uh, space, This is not as revolutionary as it actually is for us. Um, But think about paganism for a moment, um, especially like Greco-Roman paganism. The gods in paganism occupy the same box that we do, right? They're just another part of the universe. They might be a little bit more powerful than we are, a little bit bigger than we are, but they're not omnipotent. They're not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. Zeus can do a lot. If you read the myths with Zeus, there's a ton he can do. He can throw lightning bolts at you when you make him mad. He can send storms. He can make or break people's fortunes. But he's still very limited. He's limited by his own emotions, his own temper. He's limited by his nagging wife, Hera. He's limited by his lust for women. And he's limited by the wills of the other gods. Our God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian tradition, is not like that. He's not limited. And, but here's the beautiful fact about him. Just because he's out of the box, he's not part of the universe like we are, doesn't mean that he's distant from us. He comes near to us. He doesn't leave us alone. He's always working in and through our circumstances. And it's true, he can miraculously intervene for us at times. But he also intervenes for us through other people in a sort of normal, mundane, quotidian way. Specifically, he intervenes for us through the church, right? God is the primary actor when the church acts because the church is the body of Christ. So God uses secondary agents. He uses me and you um, and other churches as well. The members accomplish his will. And St. Paul actually makes this argument. He doesn't brag in himself because he's a minister and says, look at all these wonderful things I can do. Quite the opposite. He says, and such trust we have through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. That's the real difference, right? That sacraments are passive. St. Paul was made a minister. The child was baptized. So Paul understands then That his dependence is not on his own self-reliance to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. His dependence is on God. And this is why prayer is so important. Because prayer is always a recognition of our complete dependence on God. It's not our attempt to try and control him or to try and coax him into doing what it is that we want. It's about adjusting our will to his will and conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. And what our relationship of dependence tells us about God is that he will bring what he started to completion. St. Paul gives us two examples in the passage this morning. He says, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. But what is he talking about here? He's telling the story of salvation history in a very succinct way. St. Paul uses the term the letter to refer to the Mosaic law, which was given to Israel by God. Now, the Mosaic law's commandments are good. It showed the Israelites how to live holy lives. But what we also know, we learned this this last year at our Friday study on the Deuteronomistic history, um, Joshua through Kings, is that Israel failed time and time again to follow the law. Now, that wasn't the law's fault. That was Israel's fault because of their sin. Their hearts were off. So does that mean it would have been better for God to just not have given the law ever? I don't think so. And I don't think St. Paul would agree with that either. In Galatians, St. Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law prepared the Israelites and prepared humanity for Jesus, who teaches us not to live according to the letter of the law, but to live into the spirit of the law. Right? This is his classic strategy in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, do not murder, Those are straight from the Ten Commandments. And of course, you shouldn't do those things. But what does Jesus say? How does he go above and beyond that? Don't even look at a woman lustfully in your heart. Don't even get angry with your brother in your heart. So living the spirit of the law rather than just by the letter. And that spirit is where we find life. Because we're living then according to our design, our purpose. So it's not about the letter, but the Spirit enlivening our hearts, guiding us into truth, into beauty, and into goodness. Hmm. So if we look at the way that God's organized history then, he gave the law, and he gave it for a very specific purpose, and we can say it did not return void, but it found its fulfillment in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now we see another example that St. Paul uses in the letter this morning, He describes a story from Exodus 34. You probably know this story. When Moses goes to the top of the mountain, he encounters God. And when he comes down from the mountain, the glory of God is radiating off his face so that he's shining. And this really scares the Israelites because they know how sinful they are. So they make him wear a veil around the camp when he's with other people because they're too scared of his shining face. Paul uses this example as an argument from lesser to greater. If the ministration of death written and engraven in stone was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. God was faithful to the promises that he made to Israel by sending Jesus Christ. He's moved salvation history along from an epoch of death to an epoch of life in Christ and the Spirit. And so we can apply this personally because each one of us is sort of a microcosm of this larger story that God has been telling now for millennia. So if it's true that God has begun this work in us, then we know he will continue. This is what St. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us then? How does this change our lives? I think that it means that we need to do to regularly cast ourselves on God. Because when we do that, we recognize our dependence that we have on him. And one of the most important ways that we do that is through prayer. Because prayer is all about recognizing our dependence on God. Think about the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You may have seen the quote by Soren Kierkegaard in the newsletter this week. The purpose of prayer, he says, is to change the nature of the one who prays. Mary's prayer at the Annunciation was, Be it unto me according to thy word. Jesus prays the same prayer in different words at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he accepts the cup given to him by the Father. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. So these are model prayers for us, because prayer is not about persuading God or controlling God. Prayer is about submitting ourselves to him. So pray. Pray during Mass, and really the Mass itself is a prayer to which we join ourselves. Pray the daily offices during the week, morning and evening prayer. Pray for others. Pray for the world. Pray for your needs. Because when we do these prayers, it's not just speaking to the ceiling, but rather it's about recognizing our need for God. And so to close, I think it's helpful to reflect briefly on the colic for the day which says that God's not just waiting for us to pray. Our very, the very fact that we pray is God acting in us. And he's always more ready to hear than we to pray, the collect reminds us. So let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who art always more ready to hear than we to pray and art wont to give more than either we desire or deserve, pour down upon us the abundance of thy mercy, For giving us those things whereof our conscience is afraid. And giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask. But through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.